the, whether the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is linked to a handful of blood clotting cases. Six women... So when in doubt, just say, let me talk to my manager. Next, Carvana's 100% online. Whether the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is linked to a handful of blood clotting cases. Six women suffered blood clots after receiving the vaccine. One of them died. Now, all 50 states are pausing use of the J&J &J vaccine out of an abundance of caution. But there is some good news on the vaccine front. Moderna says its vaccine remains more than 90% effective six months after the second injection. And it is more than 95% effective at preventing severe cases of the virus. Meanwhile, Pfizer asked the FDA to expand authorization of its COVID vaccine to children as young as 12. The company says its vaccine study in children showed 100% efficacy in preventing illness in kids ages 12 to 15. CBS News' Natalie Brand has more on the nation's vaccination efforts. The CDC's advisory committee is holding an emergency hearing on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine now paused for use after blood clots were discovered in at least six people. They will analyze the clinical information around these six events post-vaccination and others that are reported. And, and once able to review the best available evidence, deliberate on potential updates to the vaccine recommendations and uses of the vaccine. All 50 states have agreed to follow the CDC's recommendation, but in a private call with the White House, some state leaders voiced concerns the decision could increase vaccine hesitancy. The ability for governors to reinstill confidence after something like this is a hundred times harder than putting the problem on in the first place. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy defended the decision on CBS this morning. To have a chance to do the actual investigation to see if there's a real link. And the second is to, to have that time to communicate with the, with healthcare professionals about what to look for, but also how to treat this condition. The CDC advisory committee is scheduled to vote on updated recommendations for use later this afternoon. We believe that by empowering Americans with data and facts, we will strengthen the public's trust in government and increase their confidence in the vaccines. Doctors say people who have received the J&J &J vaccine in the last three weeks need to be on the lookout for symptoms. Those include severe headaches, difficulty moving, shortness of breath, and pain in the legs or abdomen. Natalie Brand, CBS News, the White House. And joining us now to talk more about vaccines is John Moore. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology at Weill Cornell Medical College. Um, welcome, Professor Moore. Great to have you with us. So the CDC is holding an emergency meeting today to discuss the adverse reactions being associated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Meanwhile, an FDA panel is also examining data related to the blood clot cases as well as the vaccine. So what exactly are federal officials looking for? Are they looking for uh, a way to tie the vaccine to the blood clots potentially? And how long is all of this expected to take? 
That's exactly right, Tanya. They want to find out if there's a causative relationship between what's been seen and the vaccine that was administered. Uh, it could take days, it could take it could take weeks, it won't take months. But it needs to be figured out so that a decision can be taken whether or not to roll out of this particular vaccine. But the other vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, are not affected by this safety concern and people should continue to take them when offered uh, with absolute confidence. It's a, if there is a problem with the J&J vaccine, it's unique to that one. Right. I was personally thrilled to just get my second dose uh, of Pfizer, so I, I can excitedly say I'm fully vaccinated now, although I know it takes a couple of weeks for the full um, protection to kick in. But, um, st Professor Moore, states pausing use of the J&J &J vaccine, you know, this comes on the heels of a mix-up at a production plant. That mistake forced Johnson & Johnson to toss a reported 15 million doses. Officials have expressed some worry that these sorts of hiccups will make more people reluctant to get vaccinated. What do you believe needs to be done for vaccinations to stay on track? And what is your advice to anyone who is hesitant now in light of these current developments about getting the vaccine? Well, there are two different issues. Production problems are unfortunate, but they don't affect safety. They were picked, the problems were picked up. They were rapidly resolved. They're not an issue for public safety. A serious adverse event like these blood clots is more significant and needs to be investigated. And the system is working because those adverse events were picked up. And then decisions were taken to pause the vaccines to make sure that we understand what's going on. So the system is working. And again, the mRNA vaccines are unaffected by this, so people should continue to have strong confidence on it. But of course, these are all shocks to the way we, we look at the vaccine programs. And, and to some extent, that's to be expected. When you're immunizing hundreds of millions of people, it's a complicated process. And some things like production difficulties inevitably are going to arise and they'll be overcome. And in the end, every American that wants to get a vaccine will be able to have a safe and effective vaccine as more and more of the mRNAs are rolled out. And if appropriate, the, the rollout of J&J &J vaccine is resumed. It may or may not be appropriate. We have to wait and see the results of this investigation. But confidence needs to remain high because it's our best chance of ending this pandemic. And there certainly is still a huge appetite for the vaccine out there. Many, many people um, lining up to get vaccinated. Pfizer is now asking the FDA to approve its vaccine for use in kids as young as 12. This comes after the results of their study of the vaccine in children showed 100% efficacy at preventing illness in children ages 12 to 15, which is a very exciting development. Can you tell us more about that study? And if approved, what would this mean for getting kids back to school? Yes, it is an important result, and it's part of a normal procedure. You first test and approve vaccines in adults, and then you move down to older adolescents, and then you move down to younger children, and eventually perhaps even neonates. So you do it in a process, and, and, and that process has been taking place, and the older adolescents have been tested now for safety and proven efficacy. So it will be appropriate, I hope, for the vaccines, the mRNA or the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to be approved for use in 12 to 18 year olds, 12 to 16 year olds. And that will help.
Professor Moore, is there any tweaking in the dosage when it comes to younger um, people getting the vaccine, or is it the exact same dose an adult would get? Well, for older children, for adolescents who are almost full-size adults in some cases, it probably won't be much of a tweak. But I believe that when you go down into smaller, younger children, the doses will be adjusted downwards in proportion to body weight, and that will be part of the testing process. If you do the things like dose testing in a small group of people to get information on, on the optimal dose to use, so it will probably finish up less vaccine in smaller people. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Professor John Moore, thank you so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate your insight. Thanks again. For just $67, you can make as many videos as you want. Chance of ending this pandemic. And there certainly is still... Shop limited edition bottles and we'll donate to Mother Earth, Soda Street. A huge appetite for the vaccine out there. Many, many people um, lining up to get vaccinated. Pfizer is now asking the FDA to approve its vaccine for use in kids as young as 12. the Philippines and the rest of the world initial reports say this new variant cannot be detected through a PCR test considered the gold standard in COVID-19 testing. The variant was first reported in France in mid-March and so far
it does not appear to be more dangerous or contagious. The Otto Research Group is urging the Philippine government to implement stricter measures for returning Filipinos due to this new threat. Na dapat paghandaan natin. Nasabi lang may mga bagong variants na hindi na detect ng PCR test. Sabi kailangan ay ayos nila natin yung international travel protocols natin. Dapat pag may papasok na mga ano mga returning Filipinos or mga tourists, dapat mandatory na yung quarantine period kasi hindi na detect. An evolving enemy is the worst kind. Tried and tested methods may not work in their case. The Wuhan virus is one such evolving enemy. It has mutated thousands of times. Some of these mutations are more dangerous. They're difficult to trace. So what should we do? We must keep updating ourselves to tackle it. And mutations are proving to be the biggest challenge at the moment. They have been reported in the UK, South Africa, Brazil, the US, even in India. Earlier this year, India reported a case of double mutation. So why are these mutations, these variants important? Because they have supercharged the pandemic. In Brazil, the P1 variant is driving the surge in cases. In India, some experts say mutations are behind the massive second wave. So tracking these changes is very important. Remember the thumb rule of 2020, trace, test, quarantine. But tracing mutants is hard work. Your normal RT-PCR test is not working on them. In some cases, the mutants are escaping the test. So here's what happens. You get a test done and your result is negative, but you're actually infected with the virus and you'll probably discover it when your condition is much worse. It's a very scary scenario. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has warned of this. Genetic variants could possibly mislead the RT-PCR test, your regular virus test. It's happening in India too and elsewhere in South Asia. So far, the RT-PCR was your best bet to detect the presence of a virus. Not anymore, it seems. The mutations pose a new challenge. So what is the workaround? Doctors will have to bank on their diagnostic chops. There are some classic COVID symptoms. The lungs, for example, they appear glassy in a CT scan. But not everyone should get a CT scan done. And even a CT scan can sometimes mislead. The foolproof method, we are told, is genome testing. What's that? It is finding the genetic code of the mutant. Unless we know this code, we will not be able to recognize the mutant, and so a test is not going to be able to detect it. So we must know what this mutant looks like for a test to discover it, to find it. We're basically operating in the dark right now. Going forward, genome sequencing must be our eyes and ears. Otherwise, even vaccines may not help. And I hate saying this because he spent most of last year praying for a vaccine. And as it turns out, the virus has a few tricks left. So we will have to up our game. The new variants are spreading faster. They're also killing more people. Let's look at the numbers. This time last year versus right now. And now look at the trend. The daily caseload. This is what the last five days looked like. 
more than 746,000 cases were reported last Thursday, but by Monday, the numbers plateaued. There were 588,000 cases reported globally on Monday. What about daily deaths? A similar picture. Last Thursday was a peak, more than 13,000 deaths. On Monday, this came down to 8,800. Now, this sample is too small to draw trends, but projections have been made for as far as the 1st of August. This is one such model made by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. What does it say? At the current rate of vaccination and mutation, we could be looking at more than 4 million, 4 million 730,000 deaths. That's at the current trends hold. But if things get worse, in a worst case scenario, global deaths could cross the 5 million mark. It's a nightmare scenario. But if everyone wears a mask and social distancing is strictly imposed, we can still save lives. A best case scenario, unfortunately, looks like this. More than 4 million deaths. None of these scenarios are ideal, but that's where we're heading. Africa and Latin America are struggling with vaccination. Jabs are running out. Mutants are running riot. There is just one saving grace. Last year, the virus came out of nowhere. Most countries did not have the infrastructure to handle the cases. So serious infections inevitably led to death. In 2021, that should not be the case. We have added millions of hospital beds and thousands of intensive care units. So even patients with a mutant strain are surviving. The trend of 2021 is higher caseloads, but fewer deaths. Remember the basic rules. They remain the same. Masks, social distancing, and sanitizing. Mutant or not, the sanitizer will get it. And vaccinate. Vaccinate like there's no tomorrow. Governments must pump more money to vaccine making, dispel all notions of vaccine hesitancy, and make herd immunity their number one priority. The Wuhan virus is like a maths problem, a problem whose variables keep changing. Beyond is now available in your country. Download the app now and get all the news
system that you see here in blue. And depending on what part of the brain we're talking about, there's different venous structures. And so these are known as sinuses because they don't have the typical musculature, albeit rudimentary, that you would see in normal veins. And so we have different types of venous structures, all of which drain blood back to a central location. And you can see that here as the blood flows back, it flows down and then back eventually to the heart. So eventually it's going to end up here in one of two internal jugular veins. Uh, we have the sigmoid sinus here, we have the occipital sinus, the transverse sinus, the straight sinus, and at the top here we have the superior sagittal sinus. So what can happen is you can get a clot that forms, and if you have a clot that forms, it's going to cause an obstruction to flow, and you will start to see enlargement and an increase in back pressure in these venous structures. And those will then cause back pressure on that part of the brain that is being drained by these veins. So let's talk about the symptoms. One of the biggest symptoms, and of course it's not very specific, is a headache. Another possible symptom is abnormal vision. Symptoms of a stroke. So this would be where one side of the body is not working as well as the other. That could happen on the face or in the limbs or even in the legs. And then finally, seizures. Now again, this is happening because there has been a thrombosis or a clot that is formed in any one of these sinuses or veins. Other important factors that you should know is that it's much more common in females than it is in males, almost a 3 to 1 ratio. It's also more common in obesity and in a younger patient. Think about this type of diagnosis. Because you're trying to find a very delicate area and you're trying to detect whether or not there is an increase in pressure in size before the thrombosis, the best way to make the diagnosis is with a MRI and something called an MRV, V standing for vein, which is in the name, CVST. So MRI, MRV, if there is concerns. That was really helpful to visualize what cerebral venous sinus thrombosis is, but does that condition cover exactly what's going on here with uh, this potential thrombosis from the Johnson Johnson vaccine? And how does this type of blood clot or thrombosis compare with what we've seen with the AstraZeneca vaccine? Those are very good questions. So if we go back to the numbers, Kyle, there have been over 6.8 million doses given here in the United States. Despite that very high number, that represents less than 5% of the total number of doses that have been given out here in the United States. And with the six cases that we're looking at here, that's about a one in a million shot at getting this complication. So one might ask, well, why are they making a big deal out of something that's just one in a million? And it boils down to the first question that you ask, how is this different? It's different in the sense that there is something more than just a thrombosis. There is low platelets. And that is a concern about how this condition would be treated, especially if more cases came up. What they are thinking here, what they are understanding is that there may be a situation where antibodies are being made against the platelets and also something called a platelet factor four 
which causes the platelets to drop out of circulation and at the same time activate what the platelets release, causing a prothrombotic event. For those that are in the medical field, they might recognize this as very something, something very similar to what we call heparin-induced thrombocytopenia syndrome. This is where the, even though the platelets, which are responsible for coagulation and the, the initiation of coagulation, even though they are low, you would think that that would cause more bleeding. In fact, it causes the opposite. Uh, it causes thrombosis not only in the venous system, but also in the arterial system. And if you do see this type of a situation, what, uh, what is important to understand from a medical care standpoint is that the use of heparin in these types of situations is actually contraindicated and could make things worse. So if you are seeing clots as a healthcare provider, especially after someone has been vaccinated with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, the reason why they wanted to discuss this and they got this out there was to make sure that not to use heparin uh, products. Now you asked about how this might be similar or different to the AstraZeneca Oxford uh, vaccination that is not approved in this country. It's not given emergency use authorization, but currently does uh, is being used in Europe where it is being investigated also for blood clots as well. In fact, there was a paper that was just recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine asking this very question and reviewing a number of cases. And they also seem to see a situation where antibodies are being formed against platelets and this platelet factor four, which is causing a prothrombotic state and also uh, low platelets as well. And again, uh, they are advocating in that paper as well as here in the United States that if we see those type of cases, as we would do in heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, not to use heparin products, but rather other anticoagulants, in addition to, by the way, um, something called IVIG or intravenous immunoglobulin. This is a, an antibody that binds these antibodies that are being made so that they cannot produce the type of negative effects. Again, this is a one in a million shot. This is a very rare side effect that they're seeing, uh, but they're seeing it both potentially in AstraZeneca in Europe and here with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in the United States. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, what these numbers really mean. But I think the key point here is they wanted to be out of an abundance of caution, even though this is six cases out of six plus million doses, they wanted to make sure that healthcare workers were understanding of this, aware of this, so that they could be looked at and they could be surveyed and treat them appropriately. You mentioned that the FDA and CDC made this decision about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine out of an abundance of caution. That was certainly one of the talking points for public health officials today. Um, I put together a slide that shows some of the relative risk of a blood clot, potentially from the Johnson & Johnson vaccine versus other things, and was wondering if you could walk us through that. Yeah, so cerebral venous Johnson vaccine, you just know this is going to be a whole last thing among the dipshits in this country. You see them now. Like we knew it. We knew something wasn't right about them vaccines. Six people out of seven million. Who took that vaccine and developed blood clots? Fucking canned meat's got a higher ruin your blood rate than that. I bet they ain't swearing off spam. They're sitting there with like 
on oxygen with a cigarette in her mouth like you ain't getting that poison anywhere near my body meet tonal the smartest home gym with revolutionary digital weight so you can be your strongest visit tonal.com India has fast-tracked emergency approvals for foreign COVID vaccines after the country recorded the world's biggest surge of cases in a month. India has so far administered more than 106 million jabs, but many states are running short of supplies. Joining me live now is Dr. Magda Tapadia from Delhi in India. Thanks for your time. To Let's go to the scope of the issue right now. So... Um, a million cases in a week in India. Uh, how bad is the COVID situation in terms of the cases and, and deaths at the moment as well? The COVID situation is really bad. We are getting a steep rise in the cases every day. Uh, there is a continuous rise in spite of the vaccination and people are getting COVID after the vaccination as well. So I know at the moment there are a few shortages. I'll get the vaccine at the moment, but it's so acute. There are oxygen shortages, and yet there's also a bit of a reluctance to have a full lockdown because the economic impact of the big lockdown previous in the country was, was so harsh. Is that debate going on in the country right now about what should be done? Yeah, there is a lot, lot of discussion going on. There have been partial uh, restrictions put in certain states or in the district where the number of cases are rising exponentially. There is a discussion going on. The past experience with the economic impact has been very high and that's what is holding the regulators back to uh, slip into a complete lockdown. So the vaccine issue then, more than 100 million vaccinated in 85 days. It's a lot of people, it's done quickly, and yet you know, to get to the population back of an envelope, we're talking about more than, than two years. So that's the race here for India, I suppose. How is the rollout going? So the rollout is fast. After the this rise of cases, people who were reluctant to take the vaccine have become open to take the vaccine and are queuing up for the vaccine. But the vaccine shortage is seen, uh, we are seeing that in few part of country. In few part, rest of the country, uh, we see it upcoming if the supply is not restored immediately. India makes its own vaccines, but it's going to need some from overseas as well. What's the situation? Are you going to be able to get access to enough? Uh, you know, how, how long are we talking to get the vaccine rollout done? Uh, so the rollout has, uh, to, the exports actually has been stopped uh, since 25th March for the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine, which is produced by, produced by Serum Institute of India, uh, because they want to give, but the, actually because of the export ban from US, there is a short supply of the raw material. And if that gets restored, then the vaccine supply or the vaccine production will enhance and then the vaccine supply will get restored. There are vaccines available. Uh, there is shortage, but this, yes, there is still vaccine available. But to meet with the enhanced need, there has to be increased supply of the vaccine. Just finally, is it frustrating? You mentioned AstraZeneca there. 
that other countries yeah. have stopped exporting, and even though they're reluctant to use it, some of these countries, India, in its acute crisis, from what you said, they would be using it. Is that a frustration? Does that need to be looked at? I don't think there is a frustration. Uh, people have understood the result. In fact, the result which has come uh, from US is very promising with the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Uh, so people are open to using or taking this jab as well. What's up, what's up, what's up? You, too.
Well, we would be able to ramp up production much more easily than we currently can. I mean, at the moment, we have um, an artificially constrained supply precisely because all the manufacturers in the world who want to produce um, this vaccine can't um, unless it is specifically licensed by the company that owns the patents. And when you bear in mind that an awful lot of these products were made with public money, uh, huge amounts of money coming from um, governments like the US government, European governments and international institutions, it's just really scandalous um, that we've handed over, we've privatised this knowledge through patents to a handful of big corporations who are now deciding who in the world gets this vaccine and who doesn't. I mean, you know, across Africa, where we're seeing the most awful wave of coronavirus spreading, um, even frontline health workers haven't been vaccinated. Meanwhile, in rich countries like my own, people who um, are, are far less at risk of this disease are getting vaccinated ahead of those who need it more. I, I thought I was uh, living in a great place, Germany, uh, but I'm still waiting for my shot. We have a vaccine, which is fantastic, but I keep hearing there are production problems. But then, as you say, we're not even using all the production capacity out there because the patents prevent that. Is, is that right? That's exactly right. So some of the biggest vaccine producers in the world are not producing coronavirus vaccines simply because when they tried to create their own vaccine, it didn't work and they don't have one. Um, and they can't and they haven't um, uh, therefore geared up their, their production facilities, their factories and their manufacturing capacity to produce the vaccines that we've got. So it's absolutely great that we've got these vaccines. Like you say, um, an awful lot of, of, of public capacity and public money has gone into creating these vaccines. But it's, you know, we have factories across the world who could produce hundreds of millions more vaccines, including in Europe, who are saying we want to produce this vaccine. Give us the technical know-how. And big pharma companies are saying, no, 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 we're going to keep this to ourselves. And unfortunately, rich countries like our own um, are standing behind them and allowing them to do that. Exactly. I'd like to point that out and give our viewers a couple of examples. But Dana's vaccine has been nearly entirely funded by U.S. taxpayers, but it's being sold at basically a fully commercial price. On the other hand, we uh, have others like AstraZeneca who are saying, okay, we're going to sell it for much less, but they still have the patent rights over supply, which means people like me still haven't been vaccinated. I mean, don't politicians get it? They're, they're allowing these companies basically to run amok, aren't they? They are. They absolutely are. Um, and you're absolutely right about AstraZeneca. I mean, look, these companies aren't all the same. Of course, we think it's great that AstraZeneca have said they won't be profiting during the pandemic. Although I should point out that they can decide when the pandemic is over. Um, and, and at that point, they will begin profiting. And look, with a company like AstraZeneca, there was some research done a, 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 just a couple of weeks ago, um, which found that the amount of public money that had gone into research and development, public and charitable money of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine was about 97 to 99%. In other words, the company has put virtually no money into research and development. They've then been given at least $2 billion um, to ramp up their manufacturing and do trials and so on. This company hasn't created this vaccine. A university created the vaccine. They've then been helped to scale up manufacturing. Sure, pay them for the work they've done, but don't, for goodness sake, allow them to keep a patent for 20 years and decide who gets it and who doesn't get it. And when you do that, you've seen yourself. I mean, even here in the rich world, the argument now between the British government and the European Union over the contract signed with AstraZeneca, this is just nonsense. It's a public health emergency. We need international cooperation, not a very, very small group of people deciding who gets this in what order.
Well, Nick, politicians in South Africa and India have proposed a temporary suspension of coronavirus patents. The WTO likes the idea. There are signs the US does too. Why isn't that gaining more traction? Well, this is really interesting and it is exciting. Look, we didn't expect this to happen quickly. So, you know, it's going to take a while to put this pressure on, but the pressure is building. We've now got Hollywood stars and celebrities. We've got former world leaders calling for this to happen. And I mean, absolutely amazing that apparently the Biden administration is considering this proposal from South Africa and India to waive patents. That would be an absolute game changer if it happened. Um, to date, Almost all rich countries have sided with the pharmaceutical industry, presumably believing it helps their country's uh, economy in some way. If the pharmaceutical industry makes a lot of a lot of money in in, 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 where, in the country it's based in, we completely dispute that. Um, and we hope, as a result of the problems we're seeing around the world now, politicians are going to begin changing their minds on this. After all, it's really not acceptable that governments like my own can tell South Africa and India where there are huge problems getting vaccines into their own populations. There's no problem. Don't worry about it. The market will solve, will solve everything in the long run. It's not acceptable. Um, and we hope that that case is now being heard loud and clear around the world. Most countries of the global south are demanding a different way of doing this. And by the way, that different way of doing it isn't just going to help us get out of coronavirus, which is really important and, of course, at the foremost of our minds now, but it's going to get out of the, the, the situation we've got at the moment where most countries in the world are dependent from, on, on their medicine supplies coming from a small handful of countries. That's no way to run um, a, a global research and development in medicines. There's no way to produce medicines in a fair way internationally. And we need to start... Um, a, a different means of, of, of collaborating on medical research, um, of uh, factories being based all around the world so that people can have a lot more security on where their vaccines are coming from. Um, and that's going to be a, a, a big issue for coronavirus because this is unlikely to go away anytime soon. We've seen that now. But for all manner of other uh, diseases, um, we need to have a far more distributed um, um, uh, uh, manufacturing system around the world. And I hope that this could be the moment, this could be the wake-up call where we begin to develop that. Nick Dearden, Director of Global Justice, thanks for being on the show again. That's a pleasure. Experian Boost raised my credit score by 12 points instantly, which is insane. So I raised my score by All right, Sagar, what's on your radar? Well, in the wake of the WHO's whitewash report on the origins of coronavirus, a lot of questions have come to light that I actually want to highlight for all of you, which reveal both the corruption within our media, but worse, a possible cover-up of culpability, not only by the Chinese... Communist Party, but even U.S. government officials here at home. The key point I want to make at the top is this. No evidence indicates the coronavirus was intentionally released by anyone, but the hypothesis of entertaining an accident is absolutely not ruled out. 
it is well known that Wuhan, the center of the coronavirus outbreak, was home to an institute known as the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which studied bat coronaviruses, and it conducted a type of research known as gain-of-function research. This research is known to be risky, so much so that U.S. federal spending dollars towards it were suspended back in 2014, before a process was put into place that reviewed new grants towards this type of research, known as Potential Pandemic Pathogens Control and Oversight Framework. That review board's job was to look at whether grants made by the National Institute of Health were worth the risk in studying dangerous pathogens, like SARS-like viruses, which emanate from bats that are worth the risk, and to make sure that places which do this type of research have proper protocols in place. Okay, so you're with me. Well, this is where things get really crazy. We know that a group called EcoHealth Alliance received major grants from the National Institute of Health. We also know that the Wuhan Institute of Virology's specific research into bat coronaviruses was partially funded by EcoHealth Alliance with dollars that originate right here in the United States of America in our National Institute of Health. You see now why this is so complicated. This type of research wasn't just being done by the Chinese. It was funded by the USA because everybody wanted the results of this research. New information that has increasingly come to light casts light on what could be a tremendous U.S. government screw-up. My old colleagues at the Daily Caller reported recently that the National Institute of Health openly acknowledges now that the grant it made to EcoHealth Alliance for gain-of-function research in Wuhan was never scrutinized by the review board that was put into place to make sure this type of research was being done safely. That has prompted calls now by some Republicans to investigate why this oversight never happened, especially given that one of the most vocal and visible people in America as a result of this pandemic has been Dr. Fauci, who literally heads the NIH and could bear some responsibility, at least in terms of negligence, for allowing any of this to happen. The more I have spent time gathering the facts on this story and more, I have seen been have been a god at the intersecting parts. One hand, you have the media, which, because they hate Trump, decided from the beginning to say that the lab leak theory was not only debunked, but that it would incite violence against Asian Americans. The Chinese government, of course, would never in a million years implicate itself in an accidental leak of one of the most deadly viruses in modern memory. And the scientific community has been awfully silent on this. Now, I assume that the silence was because they didn't want to be tarred as racist by the New York Times or called conspiracy theorists. But now I've actually come to understand that the National Institutes of Health's involvement here implicates one of the largest scientific granting institutions in the country. So people don't want to run afoul of the NIH, who it seems now is not only connected to the type of research which may have spawned this pandemic, but it didn't follow procedures in place to make sure that a lab leak specifically did not happen. And I'll end with the most troubling part of all of this. It brings really everything full circle. You'll remember the group called EcoHealth Alliance, which facilitated the funding between the Wuhan lab and the NIH. Well, the president of that organization, his name is Peter Daszak. And guess what? He is literally the only American member of the WHO's investigation into the origins of coronavirus, which conveniently ruled out a lab leak. As to why he believes the Chinese when they say that it didn't come from a lab, here's what he had to say to 60 Minutes. We met with them and we said, do you audit the lab? And they said, annually? Did you audit it after the outbreak? Yes. Was anything found? No. Do you test your staff 
Yes. No you're just was... taking their word for it. Well, what else can we do? There's a limit to what you can do. And we went right up to that limit. We asked them tough questions. They weren't vetted in advance. Uh, and the answers they gave, we found to be um, believable, um, correct, and convincing. So they said they didn't happen. Therefore, it didn't happen. We believe it. Again, the conflict of interest here is crazy. This is the man who facilitated the funding for this type of research, joining the investigation into whether that funding caused one of the worst economic and health events in the last century. You think maybe he doesn't have a vested interest in concluding nothing came from that lab, that the virus was natural, and therefore the millions of dollars that the U.S. has granted EcoHealth Alliance over the years is all good? I choose to focus on this story today because I want to highlight, again, this isn't partisan. It's not anti-China. If it did come from a lab, it looks like the U.S. government was just as complicit as the Chinese in terms of not following the standards. And the point is that the truth should will out. It's not that the reasons why it's not is because we have a media that really is refusing to do its job here. We have a government that may have been involved. And we have our massive geopolitical rival with an incentive to make sure nobody ever learns the truth. And if you hated the last year as much as I did, then you probably want to make sure nothing like this can ever happen again. And to do that, we need an actual open and honest inquiry into the origins of coronavirus. And sadly, it is simply not something that we have seen yet. Crystal, I want to do this because people seem to look at the lab leak theory as some sort of like coded anti-China thing. Mm. And for many GOP members, that is what they are doing. Yeah. But look at the involvement here, or possible and alleged involvement, I should say, of the NIH, of major granting dollars. Now we have an American organization, nonprofit, Eco Health Alliance, where the guy who was funneling the money for this type of research is the investigator into whether the research caused this thing in the first place. It goes back to what Dr. Brett Weinstein was talking about here in terms of the, the reluctance to go into this wasn't just media and Trump. The, the farther you deep, it's because there are millions of dollars at stake yes. in terms of granting. And as always, I should have followed the ethos of the show, follow the money. Follow the yeah, money. Yeah. You know, it actually, that was kind of a light bulb moment for me, um, is realizing the incentives that the scientific community had in this whole thing as well. Because it's not just the NIH's sort of involvement right. here. It's also the fact that this research is very exciting. Scientists get a lot of grants right. to do this kind of, of money. So too. the very people who are involved in this research and benefit from the funding of it are the ones that are doing the investigation, the ones who are doing the analysis to say, hey, nothing to see here. And look, I don't want to I don't want to say that they're intentionally covering it up. Yeah. But oftentimes when your livelihood is threatened or at stake, you can convince yourself of a lot of things that are to the benefit of, that happen to be to the benefit of your career. It's the same incentives that we see in the media where it exactly. may not be so blatant as like, I am going to make sure that I screw over Bernie Sanders. But you know where your incentives are both within the organization, you know who your contacts are, you know where your bread is buttered. And so you conveniently come up with reasons to have your coverage towards him slanted and negative. Now, sometimes it really gen it, it actually is that blatant of like, I'm going to screw this person or I'm going to cover this thing up. I don't want to go as far as to allege that here. But anytime you have a news story, this is really how you have to read it. And this is kind of a perfect illustrative example. You have to think about the incentives of everyone involved in the exactly. story, the incentives of the, the writer and the outlet, 
the incentives of if the government has a particular line that they're towing, like why are they saying that? What's their vested interest here? The incentive of the experts that are quoted, everyone yes. involved. And because I'm just not like deeply entrenched in the scientific community, this one wasn't totally obvious to me at first that the scientific community themselves had a vested stake in what the results of this investigation ultimately were. And that's part of the other problem. We fetishize science over the last, oh, look, obviously, vaccines are awesome. You know, mRNA technology is incredible. Yeah, but that these are just human, these are human beings, beings subject to the same incentives and all everything. All communities are subject to the same incentives that all other communities are as well. And we cover yep. structural problems in the media, structural problems in our politics. It, it would, you know, we would, can assume that the same things will apply here to the scientific community. And we've seen Jamie Metzl, he's really a scientist, been leading the way on this open letter that recently talked about tainted politics within the WHO report. And increasingly, it does look like any actual inquiry into the gain of function research and a lab leak would implicate the NIH and our own government oversight into this research as much as the Chinese scientists. And I am for everybody who was involved being exposed here. I don't care if they're US or Chinese. And just, I'm beginning to understand now even more so why some of this information is being so hurriedly, not just, like we said, not intentionally covered up, but overlooked, brushed aside. Everybody wants to move on. Right. I want to move on too. That being said, we need to know what happened. Anytime there's this just like sudden societal decision, like, oh, yeah. we can't even talk about that. Really? Like, you're crazy. You're a conspiracy theorist if you talk about that, where it comes down super hard and without legitimate justification, you should ask some questions. Bingo. All right.